Did I forget? Okay, there we go. Let's, uh, I know Ernie just prayed, but I am rattled this morning. So let's, let's do that again. Uh, it started crazy this morning. We had some, you know, of course, technical problems because that's what happens on Sundays. And then uh, things just went south there. So let's just, uh, let's just spend a moment just preparing our hearts. God, as we open your word now, would you speak truth to us from your word? May these not be my thoughts and my opinions, but may your teaching come clearly through the text so that we might see and know what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and that we might honor you in the way in which we live and the way that we talk. God, in these moments now, give me clarity and, and help me to present your word well. Amen. All right, you can open to Matthew 7. We are just about finished um, this series on the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you're visiting, we've been here a couple of months now, three months, um, just chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to do this is this is the longest block of teaching that Jesus gives us in the New Testament, and it's probably the most clear block of teaching that he gives us um, as far as what does it mean to be a Christian? How are we supposed to live and why are we supposed to live that way and, and how God empowers us to live that way? And I think especially in our day and age, and we're going to talk about this as we get to kind of verse 15 and, and chapter 7, is, is there's just so much um, teaching that is not rooted in orthodoxy, that has brought us away from the truth of the gospel, that can really distract us and, and we lose sight of of what it, the gospel really and truly is and what it means to be a Christian. And so we spent these last number of months doing this so we can see. Here's the words of Jesus, plain and clear to us that we might know what it means to be a Christian. And so last week, we, I'm just going to just really quickly sum up what last week was because if you're, uh, so I use the ESV translation, and if you use it as well, you'll notice that verses 12 and 13 are kind of part of one section. But actually, probably better is to end at verse 12 and then moving on from verse 12. So 13 to the end of the chapter is kind of one coherent section. And so we finished at verse 12 yesterday, and I just want to highlight this, two things in it. The verse says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What do we call that in in kind of more modern language? Golden rule right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, depending on whatever translation you may be memorized in it. But just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's point is about our motivation. And so if we read that like, well, we should treat others good so that they treat us good, then we've missed the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. We've just, we've just gone right over chapters 5 and 6 in the beginning of 7 and, and just heard what we want to hear rather than what Jesus is telling us very plainly and very clearly, which is simply this, is that you and every human being is created in the image of God and loved desperately by God. And so they deserve your respect and, and, and your mercy and your kindness and your grace, not so that you get it back, but we deserve that only because we are created by God and loved by God. And so we treat others that way, not so that others treat us back that way. We treat them that way because they deserve to be treated that way because God has treated us with far more mercy than we could ever understand. 
And then as I've mentioned, chapters 5 and 6 leading up to that are just proving now if you're not sure how you ought to treat others, well, just go back and read chapter 5 and 6. And this is what it means to treat others in light of how God wants us to treat them. And, And there's a lot of whys in there as well. And then the second part of verse 12 goes, for this is the law and the prophets, which is another way of Jesus summing up and saying that, and we talked about this last week in a different uh, passage, that Jesus says you've got to love God and love people, and this sums up the law and the prophets. So how we treat and, and think of and, and submit to God and how we love others shows other people what we think of who God is and what he has called us to do. And there's only one way we can really be certain about how to do that, and that's through the Word of God. And so we read, and we study, and we, and we look at, and we go, okay, sometimes it's hard to, to wrap your mind around all of the commands or, or all the laws that exist, especially in the Old Testament, and some of them that are very contextual, that really don't have any bearing uh, on us today, and, and trying to figure out how does this apply, and, and how does this apply, and, and this is Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount, is study and learn, and see how it's wisdom, see how it will help you in your journey towards understanding who God is. And that is our goal here at the church, that we would know Jesus, and that we would know him intimately. So we get to this section here, and and so this week and next week, we're going to finish up, and Jesus gives us four warnings as he finishes. We're going to look at two of them this week, and two of them next week. And so remember, he's talking firstly to his disciples, but he's also talking to the crowd that has come around there. And so he's, he's not only speaking, sometimes when we say his disciples, we think just 12 people. But that's not the case at all. There were many that were following Jesus, especially early in his ministry. And so he's been clarifying all of this for them and also for the crowds who are kind of maybe on the fence. They're not sure. Do, do, do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Is he who he claimed he was? And so this is for the whole crowd, which means, generally speaking, this is for us too. So there are two warnings, and I want to tell you them, and then we're going to read about them. And the reason I want to do this is so that we start to think about them already as we read the text. One of the warnings is that there's, uh, there's two ways. There's two ways to live and two ways only. You either choose to follow the way of Jesus or the way that you choose. And there's all kinds of subcategories under that, but it's just generally speaking, Jesus' way or our way. And then the second thing he's going to warn us of is false prophets. And and you could substitute for our sake this morning, false teachers. We might not think of prophets in our culture as much, but there are teachers all over the place. And Jesus is going to say, you got to decide what's true and who's a good teacher that's speaking truth and who is a false teacher that that is polluting the word of God. And then Jesus is going to actually double down on this next week. And next week it gets even more intense and more serious. So, Matthew 7, 13 to 20 says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. 
So we're going to look at this in two different sections here. So verses 13 and 14. We're going to say it this way is, do we follow Jesus' way, the narrow way, or do we follow the open, broad way, which is filled with many, many other kind of subcategories of ways? Well, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Moses warns the people, he says it this way, I call, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. The, kind of near the end of Moses' life, right near the end of it. That's his plea with the people. God has shown you what is good and what leads to life and what is wrong and leads to death. Would you choose life? That's his, that's his plea. Though at the very end of Deuteronomy, you kind of see this moment of real honesty in Moses where he goes, I, I don't think they're going to choose life. I think they're going to choose their own way. And again, I say this lots, but what's, what's different between, you know, three, four thousand years ago and now. Not very much. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, Adam and Eve in the garden and God asks them and he says, everything here is for you. You can eat of anything, but, but, but don't eat here. Just trust me. Don't eat of that. The Scripture says that, that Adam and Eve look at it and they saw that it was appealing, that it looked good, and so they took and they ate it and they chose their own way instead of life. And what did that bring them? Brought them death but not only physical death, but spiritual death. And so the rest of the Pentateuch, the first kind of five books of the Bible, all deal with God showing mercy and calling his people back to the way of life, but dealing with the consequences of not obeying God and following him. And so when Moses dies and the people then uh, are entrusted to Joshua and Joshua kind of leads them through, Joshua has a very similar ending, but he says it more personally. And this is a verse that you could probably all stick on your fridge. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 15, it says this, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. That is, I hope, the statement that we all want in our own houses is that as the world goes, um, perhaps more and more uncertain, morally speaking, or, or truth-wise, it becomes more subjective, and, and we go, you know what, we're going to choose this day whom we're going to serve, and we're going to choose to serve Jesus because we believe Scripture to be true, and so we are going to follow the Lord. So that's the question that I want to ask you. First, is, is that how you want to live? Jesus points out that we have to choose whom we're going to serve, but he says that there's a way of deception. And that is broad and it looks good. And just like in Genesis 1 for Adam and Eve, it looked appealing. It looked good for, the, for sight and for taste. But they took it and they ate it, which is this kind of Hebrew euphemism for us to understand in the sense of they determined what's true. They determined what's right, not God. And so, are we going to look and are we going to say, man, that looks good. I want to do that. That looks good. I want to run after that. Or are we going to go back to Scripture and we're going to say, God, I know that looks good, but is it good? Does it only look good to me or is it what you have called me to do? And how you have called me to live. In our culture, we don't like two options. We don't like A and B. We, we usually want to find some kind of gray area in the middle. 
some kind of option C that doesn't exist. And in fact, many denominations across Canada, especially right now, are trying to change the gospel and make it more palatable because there's some very exclusive statements in it that we don't like. And one of those things is what we sang already in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that, but then look what he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he spends the rest of his ministry showing and loving and being kind and gracious to those outside who don't understand who God is to bring them in because he's desperate to bring them in. In fact, Jesus gives his very life so that people would know the way to Jesus, the way to God, the way to eternity. We might not like that there's, well, this seems exclusive and and why does Jesus get the right to say that? And our culture wants to muddy all those things. But it doesn't change the truth of it. If Jesus is who he claimed he was, and that's what we believe here in our church, that's what we believe scripture to be is the truth, then this exclusive statement that Jesus makes is one that we have to think very, very clearly. We have to think about very intentionally. Are we submitting to Jesus' way and his standard of life? Are we living by the Sermon on the Mount, especially chapters 5 and 6? Or are we living in some kind of a hybrid of I'll sort of follow Jesus, I'll do mostly what he says, but I'll also hold on to a lot of things that I want to do because I really like these things. Jesus says you can't do that. Commentator Craig Keener points this out. He says, the difficulty of Jesus' way includes embracing both repentance, sorry, embracing by repentance both persecution and the ethics of the kingdom taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's two things. It's not only has Jesus called us to a very high standard, and we've talked about that lots over the last number of weeks, and the, and the good news in that is he's given us, if we have made Jesus Lord and Savior of our life, if we have confessed that and submitted to him, we've been given the Holy Spirit so we actually can live to the way that he has called us to live. But it also comes with a sense of persecution, and that's something that we don't like here. We don't like to be persecuted for beliefs. We think everyone should have freedom for all beliefs. And while we should be kind and gracious and respect anybody who walks this earth, regardless of their beliefs, that doesn't change the fact that what Jesus said about the exclusivity of getting into eternity with him isn't true. So we need to follow Jesus and recognize that his way is the only way. In fact, if you go to the, um, the church, the, oh, what is it? The persecuted church's website, excuse me. And what they talk about and they ask for prayer from people in our country is they never ask that persecution would cease. They ask that they would be able to endure through it. Because that they understand Jesus' words, they understand that following Jesus means that you're separated from the world in a sense. That people will disagree with you and people will be angry with you. Jesus himself said, if you're my disciples, people are going to hate you. They're going to attack you. They're going, and all through the New Testament, in the letters to the churches, we see about our conduct and people slandering and lying and trying to beat us down. And the apostles say, live your life so in step with Jesus that when people try and slander you, that your life may prove you don't live that way. See, for the early church, this was a very serious thing. In fact, I don't think I can overstate the importance of this. Have you submitted your heart and your life to Jesus? And are you following his way? Or are you claiming to follow Jesus' way, but really living your own? In Craig Keener's commentary on this section, he has one final concluding paragraph. 
And it's a little bit longer. It'll be up on the screen, but I think it bears repeating because it's a, it, it really, really challenged me this week. So I want to read this. He says this. One wonders how many members in our churches today assume that they are saved when in fact they treat Jesus' teachings lightly. People who give no thought to their temper, their mental chastity, their integrity, and so forth during the week, and then pretend to be religious or even spiritually gifted in church. Do we have the courage to communicate Jesus' message as clearly as he meant it to be conveyed? To warn ourselves and others that it is possible for people to assume that they are saved and yet be damned. Some texts in the Bible provide assurance to suffering Christians that the kingdom is theirs. This text challenges cultural Christians, those who follow only Christian tradition rather than Christ himself, to realize that they need conversion. Now here's the thing. This can sound very awkward and uncomfortable and finger-pointing, and all it's meant to do, what Jesus is trying to do, is that we would evaluate our own hearts and our own lives. And that we would ask the question, am I following Jesus' way? Or kind of as Ernie said, am I just falling into the crowd and, and popular opinion and majority and yet holding on and saying, yeah, I follow Jesus, but in actuality, I do something completely different. This is not me pointing my finger and condemning any person. This is me reading the sentence and going, do I take seriously the commands of God? Let me also clarify, this isn't saying, oh, if my life isn't perfect, then I clearly am not following Jesus. In fact, in our men's Bible study for the last kind of two weeks, we've talked at length about this. And and this fits into the next section real well as we kind of move into verse 15. But this is not about living a perfect life. It's about where is our motivation? Are we trying to honor and please God? Or are we trying to honor and please self? And we are all going to mess up. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to say things that we wish we hadn't and do things that we can't take back. But the question is, are we overall, generally speaking, trying to run after Jesus? And when we make those mistakes or say those things or, or when somebody comes beside us, as we've talked about in the last number of chapters, and says, you know, Greg, you're not living this way and you say that this is how you live. Am I in repentance going to go to Jesus and recommit my life to him and to say, God, I'm sorry that I have been distracted by whatever it might be. Prestige, money, power, influence, whatever it might be. And to go, no, I want to follow after you first and foremost. And help me to realign with your will. So don't hear me saying for one second, you have to be perfect to follow Jesus. It's just not true. None of us are. But we do have to want to follow Jesus more than we want to follow ourselves. And when we don't want to follow Jesus more than ourselves, then we need to deal with, we we have a heart issue we need to deal with. And so this leads us into chapter, or to verses 15 to 20, where Jesus talks about false teachers, and and he he says, you know, you got to know them by their fruits, you got to recognize it so that we can see how we ought to live. Well, I think this warning is, in a sense, more true of us now than even back then. Because you right now at your fingertips, I've said this lots of times, you have more access to both good and awful Christian teaching at the same time. You open up your phone and you Google something and you have more resources than anyone who's ever lived before you has. 
In fact, it's one of these funny things when people walk into my library up until recently, and I'll explain this in a moment, up until recently when they walk into my office and see my library, like, that's all the books you have? <laughs> it's very condemning. It's not good. And then one of my friends retired and gave me a whole schwack load of his books. So now I look like I know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing, right? Is like, we can say, man, we have this huge library and we can claim I've read every one of these things. But are they actually good and true teaching of Jesus and the gospel? Or are they just filler books? Ten ways to a better life. Or this is what you should do or how you should live according to this new teacher. In today's world, there are so many new spiritual leaders who are trying to reinterpret scripture, like I said, in ways that are more palatable for our current culture. Many authors are coming out with new ways to interpret the Bible, or at least sections of the Bible. There are many finding social media platforms to push a new interpretation or their own agenda. In today's culture, we have information overload. So how do we discern what is true and what is right rather than simply accepting everything that comes our way? Well, that's why Jesus wrote these words to us. If you have the ESV, what does verse 15 say? First word, beware. What does that mean? I think there's an implication there for us, right, that we need to have our eyes open and be looking. We need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to be aware when someone is teaching us an ideology or or even when anybody opens scripture and starts to tell you something is we need to be aware. And so in a sense, I expect that every time I get up here and I open scripture and I try to teach it is that every single one of you goes, is he teaching truth? Because if you just assume I am, then I have not done my job. Obviously, I hope I am. But I know that at times there are moments where I'm going to understand something or interpret something incorrectly. But again, so Jesus says, how do we recognize him? Well, he gives us this word picture, right, of the sheep or the wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, don't get too hung up on on the kind of imagery. The point is simply that some people are looking for ways in which they can elevate themselves at the sake of others. In another place in Scripture, John says the same thing Jesus is saying here, where he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's warning them, and I am warning us as well. Is there is so much of this. Leon Morris writes of this imagery, he says, Jesus is speaking of religious teachers who put on a harmless front to deceive their followers, but whose real interest is their own profit. Sheep that may appear to be, or sorry, sheep they may appear to be, but their inward character indicates that they will always be wolves who try to further their own interests at the expenses of those of the flock. Notice how Jesus is bringing it all back to our motivation again. Specifically in this moment, these teachers, these prophets. Are they in it for themselves? Are they looking at it so that they can kind of have power, prestige, or influence? Or are they looking at it uh, in a sense of desperate plea to people that they would follow and take the words of Jesus' uh, words very seriously? We said this back at the very beginning in, in chapter 5, specifically in that section on the Beatitudes. 
is as you read, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are those who are meek, is the idea is that over time, we become that type of person. As we allow Christ's influence and the Holy Spirit to lead, and we submit to that, we will become more like that type of person. And what Jesus is saying here is someone who is in it for themselves will not become more like that person, and you'll be able to notice them by their fruits. And he uses these analogies of of rotten or dead uh, fruit that fall from the tree. This is a very, very serious issue to Jesus. If we misrepresent him, if we teach something that goes against what Jesus has taught, that hurts him deeply. And so you think in the New Testament, Jesus, generally speaking, is very gracious and loving in in an obvious way. But he's also loving in a very difficult way that we might describe as harsh to those who were teaching things that weren't true. In Matthew 23, 27, and 28, he goes to the teachers and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is Jesus is very harsh to the religious leaders who, who don't submit to what's true and right. But not at just the sense of being harsh. His desire is that they would understand I'm, I'm only in it for myself here. I'm in it because I get to wear fancy robes and people come up to me and call me teacher or I'm in it because I get speaking arrangements or, or people want to hear from me or they want to read my social media posts and, and all of that just fills us up with pride and, and Jesus says you cannot serve God and live that way. This is about what's true and what's right. This is about a motivation to point others to Christ. Like I said, there's so much bad teaching that we have available at our fingertips. Now, there's so much good teaching, too. That's the great news. The bad news is we have to sift through it. Well, how do we sift through it? Jesus says, you'll know them by the fruit that they produce. So here's the example. is There's so many teachers, uh, especially in the last 25 years, where, where kind of social media has really kind of taken and led us, um, where authors' books have sold in the millions and they start selling out conferences as keynote speakers. Their own churches have grown numerically like crazy, very, very fast. And yet a few years later, everything comes crashing down as scandals break of sexual infidelity, cheating the church out of money, bullying people into staying silent, kicking people out of the church that disagree with them, etc. And it all comes crashing down on them. In fact, even in today's world, there are many prominent Christian authors who have renounced their faith completely. But Jesus says you will know them by the fruit that you produce. So it comes back to chapter 5 at the beginning, the Beatitudes. Over time, what does our life look like? I once heard John Piper say this. This is, I thought, hilarious, but it's maybe a little bit dark humor. He said he prefers to only read people who are dead. Do you understand why? At the end of their life, you can look back and you can see, did this person live what they preached? Not were they perfect, but did they follow Jesus and did they intend to do that well? And and when they screwed up, did they repent and did they deal with those things? And so I, like John Piper, love to read people who have died because I know what I can trust and I know what I can't. 
In today's world, that's maybe more difficult. And maybe it feels like, man, we shouldn't judge other people's motivations. But remember, just two weeks ago, Jesus talked about learning to judge with right judgment, not condemning, but so that we would know what is true and what is right. And we would help each other and call each other into uh, submission to Scripture and into what is right and good. This is oversimplifying it, but one of my friends once said it this way. is We were talking about uh, some awards show. I don't know if it was Grammys or whatever, something. And uh, first thing the person said is, thanks to God. And, and someone in the room said, oh, I didn't know they were a Christian. And my friend looked at, him, looked at us and said, just because they say thank you, God, doesn't mean they're a Christian. Do they look like Jesus or don't they? And I know that's an oversimplification. But do we want to follow Jesus or are we just saying the right things at the right times, but like the scribes and Pharisees, inside of our hearts we know that we don't actually want to follow Jesus. We just want the benefits that come with following Jesus. I don't know anyone's heart. I don't know anyone's motivation. But when I look at these words and I see, beware of false prophets, you will recognize them by their fruits, is that that means when I hear teaching, I need to see, is this in line with the word of God? Is this true and is this right? In Acts 17, you have a group of people, in fact, Paul's preaching and teaching to them, and, and they're called the Bereans, and it says that when Paul came and preached, that they, they in, daily went to the scriptures to see if what was Paul was saying was true. Here's the crazy bit about that. Is sometimes we only view that from a New Testament standard, but the New Testament hasn't even been written. So when Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus and that he is the Messiah. They're going back into the Old Testament to see, are these things all true? Is faith by, or is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone scripturally true? Well, the Bereans would argue you can find that in the Old Testament. And so I think our goal as Christians ought to be, man, we got to study this book in front of us. we got to know it. Not... Not somehow because if we can just know every little thing, then we can correct other people or, or whatever. That's not the point. The point is that when people come to teach us, when we sit in, in church or we listen to a podcast or whatever it might be, is this true what's being said? And this is one of the reasons why I think in-person gathering of saints in a local body as the church is so important. Because you get to, this is really scary to say, but you get to watch my life. And you get to see, does Greg actually do what he says? Or is he just a fraud? It's a lot harder to do on podcasts. It's a lot harder to do on YouTube. Now, that doesn't mean we can't sit under some of those teachings. But I think all of those things need to be secondary under the family of faith that you need to be connected with so that you can live out your faith authentically together. I think it's vital for how we learn how to do discernment. And so what should we look like? Well, good thing God was smart enough he put this in the Bible for us too. Galatians 5. Actually, Becca, don't even put it up on the board. Let's just see if you can remember it. And if you don't know it, that's fine. We'll put it on the board in a minute. But I know that many of us memorized this when we were young. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Paul says against things like this, there is no law. So this is what we should look like, generally speaking. And so when we evaluate our own hearts, do I exhibit love to others? Am I showing others joy in the midst of pain and crisis? Am I peaceable and yet our world is chaotic? Am I patience Am I patient to those who test that patience? Am I kind to those who disagree with me? Am I filled with goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? Am I self-controlled? I got to say no to a lot of those things sometimes, don't I? Probably we all do. But when we look at this, this is the goal. This is what we're running towards. And so when I'm not loving to someone, do I repent of that and ask that God would give me a spirit that shows me how to be more loving? When I blow up at somebody because I'm having no self-control, and usually we know those things are our issues, not the issues that were brought against us, is, is do we repent of that and do we ask God that he would give us a greater sense of awareness that we would learn to control our temper? Or do we just justify it and go, everybody does these things, it's fine, don't worry about it. So two things that I want to wrap up with here in this text, and then we'll spend some time in communion together. So first thing is I want to ask, which road are you following? Are you following your own road, hoping that it leads you to Jesus, knowing that Jesus has said it won't? Are we following after Christ? Or as Joshua would say, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And secondly, are you being very discerning about when somebody opens the Bible and perceives to teach? Are we looking through and studying through Scripture and seeing what is true and what is right? And are we evaluating and looking and saying, is this person modeling what they say? Because if they aren't, I know what I need to do with that. As we move into communion, and this is kind of a, a really good movement here, is this is one of the ways in which the early church gathered together to remind themselves of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think of it as going, well, we got to move past the gospel into more spiritually mature things, but you're never too mature for the gospel. We need to go back to the truth of Jesus. And so in communion, and and you can flip ahead here to 1 Corinthians, and we'll read this together. But in these statements, the church comes together sorry, this is 1 Corinthians 11, the church comes together and they slow down and they eat and they drink and they remember that Christ gave his body, his life, his blood for the salvation of the church. That it's not through good deeds or works or, or some kind of argument that we can have before God that says whether we're a Christian or not, but whether we submit to the blood and the body of Jesus. So it might seem like, man, this is just a basic thing that we do every month. Don't let it lose its meaning. Don't let it move past in our minds thinking that we're maybe ready to to mature beyond this. Because we're not. We need to be reminded of the gospel regularly. And so here's what Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in a really literal sense, he's saying, every time you gather together and you eat, remember that I'm the one that sustains you. Not food. Not really. Yes, food has a place, and we should, of course, take care of our bodies physically. But not at the cost of spiritual. We need to constantly remind ourselves, just like, just like, the Israelites wandering the desert needed food to show up and God just had it rain from the sky and say, here it is. The same is true of us when we break bread together that this comes from God, that we have been given salvation through Jesus. And so it's a serious thing. And so he warns us, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat the bread and drink of the cup. So that's what we're going to do. And I, as we spend these moments together in, in quiet, and I've asked Peyton, she's going to come and she's going to play piano and, and just have just what should be somewhat familiar tune to you. But to evaluate our own hearts and to say, am I living for Jesus or am I living for myself? Have I lost focus and am I just trying to get more money, more prestige, more fame, more popularity? Or am I trying to honor Jesus? Let's evaluate our hearts and let's ask God that he would give us the strength to see what's true and what's right and the courage to follow through in that. So I'm going to pray and then Peyton can come up and um, Randy and Ernie, if you wouldn't mind coming and, and grabbing these trays and we'll pass them out. So let's pray. God, this morning has been, a, has been a tough passage in the sense that it's a warning to us. And it can be easy to ignore these warnings and to just assume that, that I'm good, that I prayed a prayer a long time ago, or that, that I said that I'm a Christian. But Jesus is inviting us into self-reflection to make sure that we are truly following after you and not the way of the world. And that we are truly following scripture, not someone's twisted view of it. And so God, in these moments of quiet that we're going to have here, in our own hearts, would we evaluate? And my hope and my prayer is that at the conclusion of that, that we will declare, just like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you.